since we are beginning a new series today called Transparent, I'm going to start by telling on myself a little bit, one of a, a funny story, a little bit embarrassing, but funny at the same time. So uh, last summer, uh, there was a day last summer where uh, we had you know, some of our youth interns in the building, which we normally do, and it was a, I don't remember what day of the week it was, particular afternoon, and I'm you know, trying to study and do some stuff, and, and occasionally sitting there at the desk and trying to study. It, it's, it's hard to you know, maintain focus occasionally, so I'm just kind of losing it a little bit. You know, I'm sitting there at the desk, and eyes are getting a little heavy, and I think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pull over to the side in one of these little side rooms right here. I'm just going to lay down on the floor for a minute. You know, lay down on the floor, take about a 15-minute nap. I'll be good to go, back refreshed, ready to go again. So I go into the little side room there, and I'm feeling a little bit guilty about this the whole time. You know, but, but I go in there, I shut the door, turn off the lights, lay down on the floor, and I hear our youth interns come into the room right next to us. And so they're in there, and I start to, to, to think, okay, this is going to be really embarrassing. When the kids walk in and see the pastor laying on the floor in the dark in this room, thinking, what in the world is going on around here? I'm thinking, I'm setting a great example for our, for our kids that we're training up, right? And so they come into the room, and I think, well, they'll, they'll be gone in just a minute, you know, and I'll go back to my office and get back to They decided to have their planning meeting in the room right outside the door. So now I'm trapped. <laughs> so, so what do I do now? Well, I do what probably most of us would have done, and that was I just stayed in there and hid the whole time until they were gone. They weren't there for that long, and once they were gone, I opened the door and darted back to my office and thought, okay, I made it. I didn't get caught, right? And now here I am telling everybody the story. I got a good laugh out of that, but it also was a powerful reminder to me that there is something deep inside of us that doesn't want to get caught, right? There's something, if, there, if certainly if something is morally wrong, or even if it's not morally wrong, if there's something that is maybe embarrassing, which, you know, we, we think, I don't want anybody to know that. I don't want that to be exposed. And so we go out of our way to try to hide from people around us. And, you know, this tendency goes back to the very, very beginning. Um, in, in the book of Genesis, God created, of course, the man and the woman, and uh, it says that, that he would have fellowship with them. He would come and walk with them. And, and when God created them, he gave them complete freedom. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. He told them to subdue the earth. I mean, they had absolute freedom with one exception. Of course, we know he told them, do not eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Everything else is completely available to you. There's this one thing that's off limits, and what do they do? You know the story. They eat from the tree. They, they rebel against God. But here's the interesting thing. After all of that happens, and it says that their eyes were opened, they realized that they were naked. Now, they had been naked the whole time, but there was no shame there. You see, once we begin to rebel against God, once sin enters the equation, then, then shame becomes part of the situation. And, and, and so once shame entered into uh, the, their lives, they did what most of us probably would do in that situation. Let's read it in Genesis 3, starting in verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
See, Adam's and Eve's eyes had been opened. They realized that they were naked. They were ashamed of that. God is coming, and what do they do? They try to hide. And how um, typical is that of us when there's something either that we are ashamed of, that, that, that might cause embarrassment, something that we know is wrong? What do we do? So very often we just try to hide. And today, uh, as we begin this new series, we're just going to dive headfirst into this, this topic and, and over the next several weeks talk about the importance of fighting against that tendency that every single one of us has to hide, and, and we need to go exactly the opposite direction. We need that for ourselves. It is what's best for us to be open and transparent with one another. It's what's best for those around us, but it's not what, what comes naturally. At least from our, our sinful nature. But I do have a question. I wonder if there's anybody listening to me today that is feeling captive to sin of some sort in your life. And you've been hiding it from everyone around you. So again, that, that's what we normally do. If you want to be set free, you've got to stop hiding. If there's a particular area of, of guilt or shame in your life, you want to find freedom from that guilt and that shame, you, you got to bring it out in the open. we got to stop hiding. Now, it might not be easy. There might be some pain involved in that. There might be some things that we have to work through as a result of that. Um, but the only way for us to find freedom is to be transparent. That, that's it. And thankfully, we have so many examples in Scripture where God just puts everything out for us and is completely transparent about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if He can do that for us, then certainly, uh, certainly we can do that for ourselves. So with that in mind, we're going to begin uh, in Matthew's Gospel today. And I'm going to do something that I've never done before. Probably not, would not have imagined doing, but I'm going to use as my primary text today the genealogy of Jesus as we jump into this series. And if you're wondering, yes, I'm serious, that is actually going to be our text today uh, as, we, as we begin. And the reason it is is because, at least in the, we're going to go through the first six verses of Matthew 1, the beginning part of the genealogy of Christ. I just want to point out what God brings to light in the human ancestry of Jesus. Matthew 1, starting in verse 1, says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, I'm going to just stop right there, because in this six verses... Of the genealogy of Jesus, there are four women 
who are mentioned in the genealogy. Now, we need to understand a couple of things about the culture and about history and things that will, that will help this make sense. Number one, um, I don't know, some of you may really get into genealogies. I know that that seems to be more of a thing uh, nowadays as you can trace your ancestry. And there's kind of some cool stuff that comes along with that. But most of us probably don't have the mindset that a genealogy is something that is just like, just lights our fire. You know, that we're just like super passionate about telling who our descendants were before us. But in Jewish culture, keep in mind that the Jews, that their identity was that they were the chosen people of God. And so their very salvation was linked to their ability to trace their lineage back to Abraham. To show that they really are God's people. And so genealogy was a really, really, really big deal for the Jewish people. That's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing we need to understand is that genealogy in this culture was always traced through the male. Not the female. And so if you wanted to, to do a genealogy, it was through the fathers. And, and for the most part, typically women were left out entirely. They wouldn't be mentioned in a genealogy. And so in, in Matthew's case, to mention four women in this one little short span of time was very, very unusual. In fact, it tells us, and of course this is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit's guiding all that we have recorded in Scripture, the fact that women would be mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus is, is very evident that God is saying, I want you to pay attention to this, okay? This is very unusual, it wouldn't normally be done this way, but I'm bringing it up to make a point here. I want you to notice these women who are part of the earthly ancestry of Jesus, okay? So let's talk about who those women were, because it's interesting, first of all, that God would, would uh, inspire Matthew to include women in the genealogy at all, but the types of women that are included really should cause us to, to realize, okay, the, the Bible's definitely not trying to hide anything. If you've ever read your Bible, you know that's, that's true. Uh, but let's talk about it. First one is a, a woman by the name of Tamar, who uh, bore children to Judah. Now, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Let's back up just a little bit. Of, uh, of all the sons of Jacob, uh, he had the, the 12 sons, and you know we get the 12 tribes of Israel and all that. But Judah is the one that, that has the, the lineage of Jesus, David, and then, and then later Jesus coming through Judah. Now, it's interesting that God would choose Judah because we're told in Genesis chapter 38 that Judah actually left his home and went to the land, went to a foreign land, went to, to stay with one of his friends in a foreign land, and he took a wife from there. Now, that was a big deal because the Jewish people were strictly instructed by God to only marry other Jews. And the reason for that was because the, the foreign nations around them worshipped other gods, and God knew what would happen. You start mixing together and intermarrying and things like that. And now all of a sudden the influence of these false gods are going to be brought into uh, those who formerly worshipped the one true God. And he didn't want to dilute that. He didn't want that, that influence to be there. So very clearly instructs his people not to marry foreign women. And Judah is the one who does. And he's the one that God chooses to, to be part of this lineage. So he goes and he takes a wife. They, they give birth, or she gives birth, to a firstborn son by the name of Ur. Uh, when Ur was older, they found a wife for him, and that was Tamar. 
Okay, so Tamar is married to Judah's son named Ur, but he was wicked in God's eyes. Doesn't give us a whole lot of detail, but he was wicked before the Lord. God put him to death. Now, another thing that's important for us to understand about the culture in that time, they practice what's called leveret marriage, which means literally means marriage of your brother-in-law. That, that word uh, is what it means, brother-in-law. And, and so the way it would work is if a man died and left a widow who had no children, then his, it was a responsibility of, one of his brothers, kind of you just kind of went down the line, to marry her, to have children, and that first child would be considered to be the child of the deceased brother. Does that make sense? So that, that's kind of how it worked. And so Judah, it's his responsibility to give another son to Tamar uh, in place of, of his son who was deceased. And so he does that. And, and she marries a guy by the name of Onan, and uh, he marries her, but he doesn't want to give her a child that will not be considered to be his own. So he, I'll just put it this way and make it family friendly, but he keeps himself from impregnating her, okay? And that is wicked in God's eyes, and so God puts him to death. So she's been married to two of Judah's sons, both of them been evil in the eyes of the Lord. God puts both of them to death. He has a younger son. He's not old enough yet. But the dad looks at this and he says, both my sons, when they get married to her, they end up dying. And so he's a little bit, Judah's a little bit hesitant. He tells her, when my son becomes old enough, I'll give him to you. But he doesn't ever do it. And after a while, she realizes he's of age. He hasn't been provided to her. There's, she wants to, to carry on. You know, she wants to, to, to bear children. And so she devises a plan. And her plan was, after Judah's wife died, he went to visit his friend, which, by the way, it's the same person that he went to originally and found his wife in a foreign country. He's going back to her again. So Tamar devises a plan that she takes off her widow's clothes. She dresses as a prostitute, puts a veil over her face so she won't be recognized. And as Judah is on his way to visit his friend, he sees her, asks to sleep with her, and she says, well, what will you give me? And she requires a pledge, takes his, his seal and his cord as a pledge of what he's going to give later. But this was all a concocted plan on her part. And he impregnates her. She bears a child of her father-in-law. Do you see how, how messed up this whole thing is? And God points it out and says, I want to remind you that not only did, did Jesus come from the line of Judah, but it was through Tamar that he came. So that, that's the first one. The second woman that is mentioned is Rahab. Now, we're introduced to Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 when the spies were sent out into the land. And this is when the, uh, they were about to, to take the land and conquer the land after uh, Moses had died. And Rahab and the other people uh, of the land had heard about what God had done. He'd heard, they'd heard about you know, everything from the parting of the, the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan, to the other countries that were being subdued before them being conquered. And so... Rahab is afraid and believes that, that the God of the, the Israelites is the one true God. And so they go into her home, presumably because she was a prostitute. It probably wouldn't have been unusual for her to have strangers in her home. And so I, I think this was a way for them to kind of try to fly under the radar a little bit, not be noticed because your spies in a land, it's a good way to not be noticed. Well, they were noticed. And the king was suspicious of them, and he said, he sent to Rahab, sent word to her, and said, you have spies that have come to your house, and she lies to the king. 
And she says to him, yes, they came, but they've already left. And, and she tells the messengers, go after him. You'll be able to catch him if you go quickly. And meanwhile, they're hiding up under some stalks of flax up on her roof. And so she saves their life. And she says, look, I saved your life. When we come, we know that God's delivering our people into your hands. So save me and my family. They agreed to do so. So Rahab has this, this change of heart going from a life as a prostitute to uh, coming to faith in the God of the Israelites. So two women mentioned so far, one of them pretended to be a prostitute so that she could get her father-in-law to get her pregnant, and the other one actually was a prostitute. These are the two women that are mentioned so far in the genealogy. You, you following me? See why I'm saying that? I think it's important for us to be transparent as transparent as the Bible is. There's a third woman who is mentioned, and that is a woman, Ruth. Now, most of us uh, that, that, that hear the name Ruth probably think Ruth is, that, that's a good thing. Like, this is a good one in the line, right? And she was. She was a wonderful woman. But Ruth was a Moabite. And here, here's a little background on the people of Moab. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Now, that isn't the only thing that was held against the Moabites. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6 says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor, and Aram, Naharim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. I'd say it's pretty clear from Scripture that to be from the land of Moab was not a good thing in God's eyes. And here's Ruth, who married into the family of Naomi, who was an Israelite, and uh, her husband died, and, and so she comes back to, you remember the, kind of the, 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 the classic verse from Ruth, Ruth 1.16, it says, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where will I go? Uh, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so just like her mother-in-law had done, um, she turns Ruth turns to the God of the Israelites. This wasn't what she was brought up with, but she uh, becomes a follower of the one true God. And so she then is included in the story. And she marries uh, uh, Ruth, uh, marries Boaz, who was a very godly man, the son of Rahab, and, and they uh, have children. Now you go on down one more that I want to point out to you. A uh, couple, couple more down, it, it, it talks about David. And it says David was the father of Solomon. And then it points out whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't even call her by name. He's talking about Bathsheba here. But doesn't even call her by name. But reminds us that Solomon's mother was Uriah's wife. Now, we've been talking about this a lot because we just finished a series in Psalm 51 where David is coming through this time of repentance because he had taken Uriah's wife from, from him and slept with her, got her pregnant, and had him killed, and we've talked about that many, many times. Now, the question, I think 
it's up for debate about whether she's culpable at all in this situation, uh, whether she had any guilt at all, uh, or whether it's one of those things where when the king takes you, you just go and there's nothing you can do about it. I don't know. But what I do know is that the fact that, that everybody knew she was Uriah's wife kind of paints a little bit of a, 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 of a questionable uh, type of a backdrop there. So these are the women. These are the four women that are in the genealogy of Jesus. Isn't that fascinating to think? Not only are they part of the story, but God said, let me highlight them as part of the story. Let me bring this to the surface so that everybody can see what was going on here. It's remarkable to me that we see that type of transparency in the scripture. So with that in mind, let me just share with you a couple of points of application here real quickly. Of Okay, how does that apply to us? Now, obviously, what I hope you're grasping here is if the Bible can be that transparent and that straightforward about things, then I can too and should be as well. But here's two things I, wanna, uh, I want us to take away with us that will help us move to greater transparency. The first one is a reminder that there's hope for all of us. There's hope for all of us. There are some messed up people. And by the way, I didn't go into the men. This is just the women because it was so unusual. But you go through the rest of the genealogy and through the kings. There are a lot of wicked kings. There are a lot of really, really, really messed up people in the genealogy of Jesus. But the thing I love about the story of these women is that they had a really bad background. But they, they changed that. They turned to God. And it's a great reminder to me that we can do the same, that nobody is ever outside of, of being helped by God and, and being able to change. And so, you know, there's just something about knowing that, knowing that, that there's hope for all of us, that we're all messed up. It, isn't it easier to open up when you know you're not the only one who's messed up in the group? <laughs> it's, it just is. There's a reason why whenever you're uh, involved in any type of um, group where there's some type of, of, whether it's you know, recovery or working through difficult issues or whatever, where generally what happens is they're very intentional about creating a culture where there's a lot of openness. Right? And those that are, that are leading are open, and those that are participating are open, and it's just kind of one of the things where everybody in that setting is very open. And that's done on purpose because it facilitates greater uh, transparency among the others when you know you're not the only one that's messed up, right? Aren't you going to be more likely to open up a little bit if you've heard other people share their story and you know, okay, uh, it's not just me. Now, here's something that really bothers me. You think about, and, and I'll just take as an example, think about an AA meeting, for example. They're known for uh, just a great level of transparency, and people know that. They know if they go to an AA meeting that, that people are going to be very open about their struggles and, and addictions and things like that. They're known for that in an AA meeting. And yet, when people think about church, I think a lot of times they think exactly the opposite. It kills me to think that somebody's mindset was, if I go to an AA meeting, I can be very open and honest, but if I go to church, I better act like I have it all together. Guys, that's a problem. That is a problem. If we, if we don't have a culture, why in the world should an AA meeting have a greater culture of transparency than we as the people of God have when we come together? It's a problem. And, and as I look at the things that, 
that, that we struggle with, and we all struggle with a lot of different things. But I'm going to tell you, certain things as a pastor, certain things just jump out at me. And they're, they're pretty glaring as far as, okay, this is a significant issue. And one of those glaring significant issues in my mind is lack of transparency. It's this, this uh, thought that I've got to pretend like I'm somebody I'm not. Or I've got to, to put my best foot forward. Or I've got to somehow convince people or, or, or hide you know, the parts of my life that are shameful or embarrassing or sinful or whatever it may be. And that could be because of choices we've made. It could be because of things that are totally outside of our control. But we need to be reminded um, that there's hope for all of us. And it's important for us to, to, to be open. Now, I know I sound like a broken record because I say this all the time. But openness, we need biblical community in order to facilitate that. You're not just going to walk up to somebody and spill your guts, nor should you, but but we need that type of community where we're developing relationships, where we're spending time together, where we can be open with each other. I mean, that's just the way it works. And that's why we're constantly harp on that over and over again. If you haven't found a place to plug into biblical community, you've got to find that. We need those types of relationships. I'm going to tell you right now that, that my level of openness with, let's say, somebody who's new to the church or that I'm meeting for the first time, it's, it's going to be totally different the way I, the things that I might say to that person versus what I'm going to say to my men's group on Friday morning. You know, it's, it's, it's just different. We need the, that type of relationship. We need biblical community so that it will facilitate us uh, being more likely to open up. It's not going to happen automatically, but boy, I'm going to tell you, when you are in biblical community, it sure increases, dramatically increases the likelihood that, that you will um, be more transparent. And the reason we can do that is because we know, number one, that we're all messed up, but number two, that's what the gospel message is all about in the first place, is that Jesus, I mean, Jesus is the only one who wasn't messed up, but we're actually, by the way, next Sunday going to talk about him, not that he had any sin, but he was open and transparent when he was struggling. We're going to get to that next week. But Jesus is the only one who wasn't, messed up and yet was still modeling transparency but the reason he went to the cross for us is because we are sinful we don't have to hide that in fact the more we bring it out into the open the more opportunity we have to just experience the fullness of God's grace in our lives and so we don't have to hide I don't have to hide you don't have to hide and, and Jesus died for every single one of our, 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 our sinful acts, the things that we're ashamed of, the things that cause us to want to hide. Jesus died for all that. And we can find forgiveness, we can find grace, and so we know that there's hope for all of us, no matter what we've done. I'll tell you right now, if your perception of church people is that they're the ones that have it all together, don't ever struggle, don't ever have any issues, you've, you've got it wrong. And sometimes the reason people have that perception is because of how we act and, and our lack of transparency. Um, but we struggle. I mean, yes, God does change people for sure. I mean, he changes hearts and, and you know, moves us from where we were to where he wants us to be. That's for sure. But we're still a work in progress. And it's okay to be honest about that. Here's the second point of application. When I look at especially those women in the genealogy of Jesus, it reminds me. That your past doesn't rule you out. I mean, <laughs> if, if some of the things in the past of, of, of these women didn't rule them out, 
then certainly nothing in your past is going to rule you out either. And I, I just love the fact that God highlights the checkered past of some of these people, uh, especially the women in uh, the genealogy that we talked about. And so and it's not just here, by the way. You work through your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through Scripture, you'll see that God chooses people who are messed up. You know, not just that he allows them to be a part of the story. It's almost like he goes out of his way to say, I'm going to find some people to include in my story that nobody would have ever seen this coming. And I think the reason for that is because he wants us to get this message that your past doesn't rule you out. That God is a God who can transform and can make us new and can give us the opportunity to start all over again. And so um, we need to be reminded of that. But, you know, even when we know that, Sometimes to know it in our minds and to, to truly live that way can be two different things. I have a, a friend who is a wonderful, wonderful pastor who uh, I was talking with recently and, and uh, just shared with me kind of in, in the a context of being able to be open, uh, some of the things from his past. And he said, I'm, I'm, I, I don't like to talk about this. And I said, why not? What, what are you afraid of? Like, what's your concern? With this, and the response was this. He said, I, I don't want people to view me as damaged goods. This is from a pastor who is a wonderful, theologically solid, seminary trained pastor who knows and could, could stand up here and, and communicate, you know, to your to the church. Uh, uh, this is God's truth, but still struggles with this is how I feel. And I think that's, that's where we find ourselves is, you know, we know it. We know what the Bible says, but we have to choose to listen to the right voice. The challenge is this. We, we see in the Bible a lot of times God speaks in a whisper, right? It doesn't say this in the Bible that I can think of. I mean, it does say the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, so maybe it kind of does say this. But, but I think God speaks a lot of times in a whisper. Satan shouts, He's really loud. And if you're in a room where one person is shouting and another person is whispering, it's really hard not to pay attention to the voice of the person who's shouting, right? But we have to train ourselves to listen to the right voice. We have to train ourselves. Maybe it's to get in Satan's face and say, shut up. What you say is not true. Back off. Leave me alone and, and, and let him go on to somebody else that's going to pay attention to what he has to say. But it's hard sometimes not to listen to that voice of condemnation that's just shouting at us. But I urge you to do that. I urge you to remember that, that anytime you are feeling condemned, that's not of God. Just remind yourself that your past does not rule you out. Nobody's past rules them out because God's grace transforms us but in order for us to get to a point where we experience that we've, we've got to stop hiding so I'm really really excited to dive into this further over the next few weeks but just talk about the importance of that but so vital for us that we realize the importance of being transparent and just you know we can be who we are and we can be honest about our struggles because of what Christ has done for us he's forgiven us he's covered all of our sins he wants to forgive. He wants to change. He wants to make us new if we'll allow him to do it. Let's pray. Lord, today I do ask that you will uh, just change our hearts. 
make us new. And um, Lord, I pray that, that you would shine through the brokenness in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.